Joining us today, uh, we have Dr. George Silbershots. He is a licensed psychologist in San Francisco who has been practicing, teaching, and doing research on psychotherapy for some 40 years. In addition to his private practice, Dr. Silbershots is a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. He is a past president of the North American chapter of the Society for Psychotherapy Research and a past president of the International Society for Psychotherapy Research. His main interest lies in the question of how psychotherapy works, and he has contributed to the growing research on control mastery theory, which we will be discussing here today. Dr. Silbersatch, again, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so I gave you a, a brief introduction there, but is there anything that you'd like to elaborate on, or can you kind of tell us about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, the main thing is that it's unusual in, in our field, in, in the field of psychotherapy, to have someone who is both a cl practicing clinician, which I've been all along, as well as someone who does research. I think in a lot of the academic world these days, it's very bifurcated that people are either doing clinical work or, or research. And so many of the people doing research in psychotherapy uh, don't see patients or haven't seen patients in a very long time. And I think that being able, having one foot in both worlds has been extremely uh, beneficial and useful to me. Yeah, I've, um, I've read a few books on the divide between researchers and clinicians, um, especially books by psychoanalysts. Um, and they, you know, uh, researchers, they conduct these randomized control trials on these different therapies. And then they say, hey, look, it works. Um, but then the, a lot of times the clinicians, they might argue, well, Maybe it works in a lab, but it it's different here in the real world. So is that kind of what you're talking about? And yeah, and I think as a clinician, one of the things that we, we know is really important is well, the question is not what works, but what's gonna work for this particular patient that I'm seeing right now. Because the kind of thing that works for one patient may not work well for another patient. And so the, the from the clinical perspective, it's very important to be able to understand something about the patient and how you can help this patient. And the research tends to focus a lot on depressed patients or anxious patients or OCD, you know, and that doesn't really tell us very much about the next patient coming into our office for a therapy session. Yeah, there's a, you sent me an article, uh, I think it was maybe a book chapter, but in it, uh, it mentioned Hippocrates and how he said he said something along the lines of um, we we should be asking what type of person has a disease more so than what type of disease does the person have exactly yes yeah. I love that <laughs> there's a lot of wisdom in that in my <laughs> yeah so can you tell us um in over 40 years of practicing um kind of your your theoretical orientation, maybe your background, and what you've seen um, in regards to what we were just now discussing in your mm -hmm. experience? Yeah, so like a little bit of history for me. Um, 
So I, I got interested in this question. Um, my last year of college, actually, as an undergraduate, I, was, uh, I, I got my degree at Berkeley, and I took a seminar, a clinical psychology seminar, actually a psychotherapy seminar about just different models of psychotherapy. And it just sparked an incredible interest for me about what is it about two people sitting down for a period of time and a person getting help from that? What, what goes on between people that allows those kinds of changes to occur? And, and to the extent that changes are occurring, what, how do we understand those changes or what contributes to those changes? And that's, I think that's really the question that has been on my mind uh, since that time <laughs> as an undergraduate. It's just something that's never, I did my doctoral dissertation on that question. It's what I've pursued uh, in research and my teaching and my writing of just wanting to have a clearer and, and a better understanding of what is it about psychotherapy that works? In other words, how does it work? I'm less interested in particular top-down theoretical models than I am in just wanting to have some perspective mm. on how therapy works. And that's really what's driven me. Um, and that's partly what drove me to the work at Mount Zion Hospital that uh, Joseph Weiss and Harold Sampson were doing uh, on their control mastery theory, because I thought that that was one of the really interesting, I mean, they were doing research, I mean, first of all, they were both psychoanalysts, but they were doing uh, what was unique about them is these were practicing psychoanalysts that were also studying hmm. the process of psychoanalysis, very, very detailed oriented studies about the process and what was going on in the process that contributed to, and of course that that's what I was really interested in. And that's that's what drew me to that work. And to, and that's kind of where I've stayed uh, okay. pretty much my whole career. <laughs> did you did you have personal training in um, psychoanalysis or did you go to? Yeah, I went to, after uh, finishing my um, undergraduate degree at Berkeley, I was, uh, I was interested in, in broad psychoanalytic perspectives. And that meant uh, at that time, at least this was, uh, I graduated in 1972. That basically meant you had to go to New York to really uh, get graduate training. So I, I did go to New York, um, to NYU, where I got my uh, PhD. And, um, and in that, my time in New York, I got a lot of uh, training in, in psychoanalytic theory and psychoanalytic psychotherapy and um so yeah that was uh that's where i developed my chops in terms of at least getting the the background you know i mean there are plenty of things that are wrong with psychoanalytic theory in my point of view but um i think it was the most ambitious theory at the time of really wanting to understand what made people tick and why people did the way the things they did and what were things that people were unconscious about. And so, so I think that was, I was really very immersed in that for a, for a long time. Okay. And then, so you, you brought up how you came across Weiss and them and how they were studying um, and developing this control mastery theory. Can mm -hmm. you explain what control mastery theory is? Maybe it's main principles um, and how they view case conceptualization. Sure. Yeah. sure. So, 
The first thing one always has to start with is this weird name, control mastery theory, because when I've gone many parts of the world in the United States and given talks on control mastery theory, and the first thing people think of, oh, here comes some weird guy from San Francisco, and this is going to be some S&M kind of thing. That's <laughs> the first kind of thing that comes up in people controlling and mastering and all that. And of course, it has nothing whatsoever to do with that. The, the, the name control mastery theory just comes from two basic premises uh, of, of the model that Weiss and Sampson developed, which is that people have considerable control over their conscious and unconscious mind, and that that control is regulated by a person's perceptions of safety and danger. Hmm. So that's the control part of the, the name for the theory. And the mastery part is the, the premise that people are primarily motivated, people that come to therapy are primarily motivated by mastery. They want to master their problems and conflicts. Okay, so that's the, that's the name part of the theory. In terms of the basic, um, basic principles or premises of the theory, they're really um, just a handful of them but they, um, they explain a great deal, in my opinion. So um, the, the first observation came, and it's a basic premise of the theory, it's about safety. So Weiss wrote a paper in 1952 called Crying at the Happy Ending. Really short, it's a one-page paper, and it raises a really interesting question, which is this. Why is it that people will often cry at the happy ending of a movie rather than during the sad parts of the movie? Now, of course, sometimes people cry during the sad parts. That's, but it's, all, it's interesting to think about why do people cry at the happy ending? Hmm. And what Weiss said is that that had to do with safety, that during the saddest part of the movie, people are actually endangered by their emotions. They, they can feel they can be there can be a sense of danger about being overwhelmed by feelings of sadness. And so they hold off their feel they put their feelings aside. And at the happy ending of the movie, it's actually safe to experience the sadness that they've been feeling in an earlier part of the movie. Mm. So that was the uh, that that's where the theory sort of originated with the principle of safety that people regulate their their feelings, their beliefs, their uh, narratives, based on their perceptions of safety and danger. Hmm. So that's one basic premise of the theory. And again, this is not unique to control mastery theory oh. by any means, but it's it's definitely something that's at the a center piece of the theory. Hmm. Another one is adaptation, and the, this comes from basic Darwinian biology that all living things are um, wired by evolution to adapt to their reality. The, the way Darwin put it is you either adapt or you die. I mean, those are the two choices. And um, so the, uh, in, in humans, adaptation is regulated by a few different things. First of all, safety and danger is very important for adaptation, obviously. But in humans, we have to develop various, we have to develop a map of the world. And this happens very early on in, uh, you know, in toddlers and infants, people develop 
a, a map of who are these people in my world and what are they about and how can I adapt to the various uh, people that are, you know, it starts obviously with a primary caretaker, usually a mother, but then it extends to the family and so on. So um, in humans, adaptation um, sort of, the key to adaptation in, in humans is to, is developing certain beliefs or schemas or maps of the world in terms of how things work. In, in attachment theory, Bowlby referred to this as internal working models. Mm. We develop our models about uh, how to preserve relationships and so on, what endangers the relationship, what keeps it going and so on. So that's a, a, another basic premise of the theory. We have adaptation, we have safety and danger. Then um, based on certain kinds of problematic or traumatic kind of experiences, people will develop sort of pathogenic working models or what we call pathogenic schemas or pathogenic kind of beliefs. Mm. So for example, a person who grows up in a family, say with a um, depressed mother mm. may feel like I must, I must not leave my mother's side because if I leave her, she'll become more depressed. Mm. Now as a child, that's a very, that's, ad, that's adaptive because yeah. the child is preserving their relationship with a parent, but it becomes pathogenic because if that shapes one's views of relationships, obviously that's going to be problematic. So that's, uh, based on traumatic kind of or adverse childhood experiences, people develop certain kind of pathogenic beliefs or pathogenic schemas. And uh, another premise in the control mastery theory is that when people come to therapy, they come to basically disconfirm or overcome their pathogenic beliefs. Mm. And one of the ways that they do that is by testing them out. They can test them in the therapeutic relationship mm. or they can test them in other relationships, but the therapy relationship is sort of designed to help people uh, overcome their pathogenic kind of beliefs and schemas. Mm. So that in a nutshell is the, um, are some of the basic premises of, of the theories. Oh, and then one other key point is that we, we've developed, um, an approach to formulating what we call a, a case formulation or a plan formulation that it's a, a, a tool that helps us understand what are the person's goals in coming to therapy, what's getting in the way mm -hmm. of their pursuing those goals, which are usually pathogenic kind of schemas, and how might the patient work in therapy to overcome those. And so the understanding that piece of uh, the person and their problems is very helpful to a therapist. Okay. When developing the plan, um, and let's say you are trying to pinpoint the pathogenic belief, mm -hmm. um, I know that maybe with some clients, it'll be more apparent right off the bat. Mm -hmm. With some clients, they, they might not be as revealing as much about their childhood or um, you mentioned, you know, a lot of times pathogenic beliefs develop in childhood. So I guess like how, when you're developing a plan, how much do you have to know for certain that this is my client's pathogenic belief um, and how much of that is kind of guesswork in the beginning stages? Mm -hmm. yeah. 
that's a very important and excellent question. So because we've done a lot of research on psychotherapy, we have um, had to streamline for, for research purposes, we've had to streamline our um, formulation process from one session typically, which is an intake set. Now the, the intake session is, I should say it's structured. It's not just an open-ended kind of, it's a very structured interview where the person is asked, well, what are your primary goals in therapy, coming to therapy? What do you want help with essentially? Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we get a detailed history and so on. So I, I only say this because in research study, we've been able to demonstrate that we can do that. We can develop pretty reliable formulations based on one structured intake interview. Okay. Now in clinical work, when I'm seeing, when a patient comes to see me in therapy, um, I'm not constrained by that, of course. I mean, I approach it in a much more open-ended way. Mm. That is, I do, of course, want to find out what does the person want my help with? What's bringing them? And and I do ask them a great deal about their history and their growing up and their relationships and so on. But I may take my time. I mean, that may be over a period of several sessions and so on. Mm. And it's true that some people are more open in talking about uh, some of these things than others, of course. But the process of formulating is it does, it's an inferential process. Mm. And sometimes you make inferences so for example um let's say a uh, a person um you know has a um trying to think of a of an actual example here of um a person who is in a in a problematic relationship comes to therapy and they want help leaving the relationship okay that's what they say they they want um now they may tell you that the, the patient i'm thinking of actually told us very little about her childhood but the pieces that she told us were very very revealing mm -hmm. so what she told us was that she had a she was a her mother's favorite daughter there were four children but her mother really leaned on her a lot and oftentimes it was very hard for her to um, pursue her own activities growing up because she felt like she had to be her mother's caretaker. Mm. Now, you go from the, here's where the inferential process comes. She's in a dysfunctional relationship with an alcoholic man. She'd like to leave. What's getting in the way of her leaving that relationship? She developed a pathogenic, now this is inferred now. Huh? She developed a pathogenic schema that she's responsible for other people in the way that she was responsible for her mother. And that's what's getting in the way of her leaving this dysfunctional relationship. So she's not saying that, right? She's not telling you, I can't leave this guy because I feel so responsible for him. But she begins to tell you these pieces that one can reasonably put together in a, in a cohesive kind of formulation that would help you uh, understand that. And then, you know, we would test that out. I mean, we use the formulation to see uh, if therapists make comments or interventions that are either consistent with that or not consistent with that. How does that play out in the process and the outcome and so on? Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And then can you explain, um, maybe using that same case, can you explain how she might then test the therapist? Yeah. 
Um, she might um, talk about um, something like um, she went out with a, a bunch of friends. She didn't. She went out with a bunch of friends, not with the p person that she's living with, uh -huh. and had a really good time. And uh, it was the most fun she'd had in a long time. And then she came, she came back uh, home and the next day she was really pretty down and depressed. Mm. Okay, so then she might want to see how the therapist uh, responds to that. Um, so alternatively, she could talk about, um, she was, um, I mean, this really happened in this therapy where she, um, Oh, I don't know. She um, felt like she had to take care of this guy's. Uh, one time he came home and uh, was really depressed and he had uh, children from a previous marriage and she felt like she had to take care of the children and resented that. So she might be trying to put together a picture of trying to understand where does the therapist come down on the side of what she really wants to do. Does the therapist think that she's um, uh, like a bad person for not wanting to take care of these stepchildren? She doesn't really want to be burdened. She wants to be having more fun. So she can see whether the therapist is on the side, if you will, mm -hmm. of her having um, more fun in her life and enjoying herself more versus feeling like she's got to you know, be this caretaker of not only the alcoholic partner, but his children and so on. So that might be one way in which you could uh, test that out in the therapy. Yeah. Um, how about um, treatment by attitude? I, I saw a kind of a article or chapter on that, and I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about treatment by attitude? Sure. So treatment by attitude is a concept that um, Hal Sampson uh, wrote about and, and developed. Um, and it's basically in response to uh, a lot of, uh, it, well, a lot of therapeutic models, including in, in psychodynamic and psychoanalytic ones, where the emphasis is very much on technique, mm -hmm. right? On the need for particular interpretations, for example, in the psychodynamic realm, or, you know, in, every model has some techniques that they uh, espouse. What Samson wrote about was the idea that there are many, many, many therapies, maybe even most therapies, where the therapist's attitudes are actually as important, if not more important, than the particular techniques or in, in the, the realm that Samson was talking about, than interpretations. Mm -hmm. So he gave this really interesting example in that chat. I think the chapter starts out with this example of a, a Samson was a pretty popular therapist. He often didn't have time to see new patients. And a colleague of his asked if he would uh, be able to make time to see his niece. And he said he would. And so the niece contacted him and they had an initial session. Oh, and the, the only thing the colleague told Samson about this young woman was that her father seemed very disinterested in her and that had always been a, a very uh, difficult uh, issue for her. So she comes to see Samson. She's very glad that he could meet with her. And they have a couple of sessions. And, um, and then the third session, she comes in for the third session and says to him, 
you know, I decided that um, coming in here to see you would be, she lived uh, in the suburbs, his office was in the city. It would just be too difficult for me to drive in to see you um, with any regularity because of traffic and blah, blah, blah. And all he said was, huh, well, I actually, I was going to recommend that we meet and that I was rec going to recommend our meeting uh, twice a week. Hmm. And uh, she said, okay. <laughs> and they started therapy. <laughs> now, that was an example of him having a certain attitude, shaped in part by what his colleague had told him, that she's traumatized by a, a, a father figure who is uninterested in her, mm. number one, and based on what he observed or what he learned about her in the two uh, interviews, uh, he was showing interest. It was an attitude of interest. The attitude of, I'm interested in you. I find you to be an interesting, worthwhile person, and I would like to work with you. Mm. And that attitude, it, and his point in, in that example is that that attitude, and that attitude alone can go a very long way mm. in helping a person in therapy. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's um, that's like the therapeutic alliance or the therapeutic relationship and how that can be more effective. Just the relationship can be more effective than a technique or an interpretation. Um, and that attitude built their therapeutic relationship in a sense, uh, made it right. stronger. Right. Now, but now here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Okay. okay? Because um, the same attitude hmm. can be extremely helpful for one person Mm. and not helpful for another person. Uh -huh. So for example, a, uh, a, like this woman was very helped because she, her trauma, if you will, was having a parent that was uninteresting, that was not interested in her, didn't really, um, wasn't invested in her, right? Uh -huh. And so that attitude was extremely helpful. But think about a different patient who came from a very different kind of background, different kind of family where the the parents were overly involved, like helicopter parents, overly intrusive, overly involved. Now that person might say, you know, I'm having second thoughts about therapy because of blah, 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 you know, and, and that might be part of, uh, anyway, for someone in that, from that background, being able to say, no, I want to see you a couple of times a week might not be all that helpful to them. Mm -hmm. They might need a different kind of that. They might need an attitude of, well, I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Let's talk about that. Or, you know, perhaps this isn't the time that you want to do therapy, or whatever it might be. And then that person might be helped by a more, um, an attitude that gave them more room and more autonomy, if you will, mm -hmm. to explore their own uh, wishes more fully and so on. Yeah, that makes sense. And I just want to, I want to point out if I have this correct, um, going back to the first example where she had the disinterested father and then she brought up to the therapist um i'm not sure about coming here anymore um and then when the therapist presented with that attitude of interest and well i was thinking we should meet like twice a week and then she agreed um that was her testing correct like yes okay yes. and he These passed the test so to speak Yes, the, that, that, that was a very clear example of, of the patient. That's, that's a subtle kind of test. There's a, um, 
there's an example I use a lot in some of my teaching that um, of a patient who came to, actually this was a psychoanalytic case that we studied of a psychoanalysis, a woman, a woman in her late 20s who, came, who sought treatment because she fought with her husband a lot. She mm -hmm. loved her husband a great deal, but she fought with him and she wanted to understand why she fought with him. She couldn't feel close to him. She couldn't enjoy sex with him, even though she loved him. Mm -hmm. And that's why she was coming for treatment, right? So um, she chose a particular analyst for this treatment, a, a Freudian, pretty classical Freudian analyst. And she knew that this analyst is interested in dreams. Mm. And she made it known that she's very interested in why she fights with her husband. Okay. Mm -hmm. So she, the, the first few sessions go on. And the, the, I think it was the fifth or sixth session of this psychoanalysis starts out in the following way. I had an interesting dream last night. And then there's a, a pause. I also had a fight with my husband. Now there's a long pause. Which would you like me to talk about? Okay, now that's a very clear kind of, you could say that's a test in a certain way. Now, she, I mean, she made it known. There, there are a few things she told the analyst that, um, well, what I want to, I want to use what she told the analyst to show you what a, a, a formulation looks like and how you could use that formulation to immediately know what would be helpful to say in that instance. Okay. okay. So what she told the analyst was that she had a very narcissistic father, mm. extremely narcissistic. For example, if he, um, if the children wore, if she wore a different kind of outfit than he, if he, if she wore something that he liked, he would be oh beaming and smiling and happy and everything would be. But if she chose clothing that she liked, that was different than what the he would be sullen and down and you know uninterested in her and so on. So extremely narcissistic. Yeah. Now, when you grow up with a father like that, you develop a a model that in order to preserve a relationship with and particularly with a man, a parent, but in this instance, a man, mm -hmm. you have to subjugate yourself to that person. That's how you preserve a relationship with them. So that's a pathogenic, it's, a, it's an adaptive schema as a child, mm -hmm. but it becomes pathogenic, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes problematic to always be subject, subjugating yourself. And in fact, you could say it was a problem in her marriage because it's hard to feel close to someone or feel sexual with someone where you're always feeling like you have to give in to their wishes and so on. So that was her pathogenic schema that to preserve a relate, we know what her goals are. Her goals are to be able to better get along better with her husband and have a better relationship. Mm -hmm. The pathogenic schema that's getting in the way of that is the belief that you have to subjugate yourself in order to preserve a relationship with a man. And the trauma that gave rise to that was being raised by this narcissistic father. Mm. Right? So that, that's kind of the rudimentary formulation, if you will. Mm. Now, with that formulation, you would know as the therapist that when the patient says, which would you like me to talk about? Oh, this is a test. Do I have to subjugate myself to you the way I had to subjugate myself to my father or the way I do with my husband, mm. right? So being able to say, I think you should talk about whatever you'd like or whatever is important to you 
would at least in that moment, I mean, it doesn't, obviously it's not going to cure her, yeah. but it would be very uplifting and reassuring to her. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example of, uh, of a way in which we use a formulation to help understand what the patient is doing and how you can best help the patient. But the thing I always emphasize when I said to you earlier that what's important as a therapist is you need to know what's going to be helpful to this patient, to the Mm. particular patient you're working with. So someone could say, oh, well, for anybody saying, oh, I think you should talk about whatever you want to talk about. You decide what you want to talk about. That should be helpful to anyone. But it's not. Because people that would imagine a a different patient, again, a young woman who was traumatized by growing up in a family that could not handle her basic needs, her basic questions. You know, when she would ask something of the parents, they would say to her, you figure it out. We don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a different kind of trauma. And someone who's traumatized like that and then ask the therapist, well, what should I talk about? And if a therapist says, you talk about whatever you want, the patient's going to hear it as a repetition of they have to figure everything out on their Mm -hmm. own. They can't rely on someone. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very important to be able to um, understand what a particular patient's problems are in order to know how uh, you as a therapist can best help them address those problems. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, for just as an example, so I'm in I'm in a graduate program, and we have to give case presentations. And when we do so, we take a theory like cognitive theory, we present the case using the theory, and then based on the theory that we use, we say we're going to use like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, or like relational frame theory and act. Um, with control mastery theory, can you explain um, your the from a control mastery theory perspective, the point of view of, of it being both kind of a theory and a therapy? Yeah, so it's a little bit tricky for people because yeah. one things that's distinctive about control mastery theory is it doesn't, it's not a set of techniques. It's not about how do therapy by doing these things, by challenging a person's irrational beliefs or by uh, exposing them to this or that kind of uh, thing that they're afraid of. It doesn't privilege any particular technique at all. What the theory does is it, It's a model about how psychopathology develops Mm -hmm. and how psychotherapy can help address that or how psychotherapy can help a person work on or change their disconfirm their pathogenic kind of schemas and beliefs. And we don't privilege a, and that's why Samson's paper on attitude is important. It can be done by attitude. It can be done by interpretation. It can be done by confrontation. It can be done by any number of techniques, as long as the particular technique that the therapist is using is specific to helping the person disconfirm that pathogenic belief. Mm. So, In that example I gave of the woman who says, which would you like me to talk about? 
I mean, I could make up a scenario where someone makes a very deep interpretation about that. You know, like, you know, when you were a kid, you felt like you always had to go along with what your father wanted. And that made you feel like you don't have any agency in terms of what you want. Mm. And I think in our relationship, I think you can have it. So that would be an example of just laying the whole thing out. That would be fine. Uh, to do, I mean, because even that interpretation would be helping the person disconfirm their pathogenic belief that they have to subjugate, that she has to subjugate herself to that therapist. I could, you, you could achieve the same thing with a cognitive therapy intervention by showing the person a certain kind of irrational pattern of beliefs that she has of needing to, um, always feel take care of the other person's needs ahead of her own needs, for example, or so on. So any, any number of techniques per se could work as long as the, the thing that's essential is that they are in the service of helping the person with this particular pathogenic schema that they have. So that's what the control mastery theory privileges is understanding what the person's particular goals are, what their pathogenic schemas are. And to the extent that a therapy addresses that, it will be a successful treatment. It doesn't privilege one. And, you know, in a certain way, if you look at what the meta-analyses show, no one set of techniques is better than another. You know, there's, there, it's very, very hard to develop a, a clinical trial. You know, when we do clinical trials comparing you know, CBT with EFT or with uh, psychodynamic or whatever it might be. Uh, I mean, in general, the results come out that they're all the same, that no one is better than another. And from my point of view, the reason for that has to do with what I'm talking about, that in other words, therapies that address the particular patient's problems and needs and goals, what we call the, the plan formulation, are, are going to be successful. And there are different therapists in all those different schools that do that well mm -hmm. and others that don't. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in, in all of your years of research, uh, you said you started out trying to find out what makes psychotherapy work and you're still researching that kind of same topic. Right. Um, and you said, you know, control mastery theory kind of drew you to it because they were trying to also research how does it work? How does psychotherapy work? Um, is this kind of, is the CMT formulation kind of the best answer that you found? Or um, is there, is there more to it that that CMT doesn't really explain that you've found through research? That's a great question. I think, um, so for the first part of your question, I do think that what that having a good enough <laughs> formulation, good enough plan formulation, by, by plan formulation, I just mean what are the person's conscious and unconscious goals? What are the schemas that get in the way of those? What are the traumas that gave rise to those schemas? And how might the patient test those in therapy? That's what we mean by a, a plan formulation. Mm. And I would say that therapists who, whether they're aware of doing this or not, therapists who, who uh, address 
the patient's particular plan in these ways I just laid out, um, that to me does explain a lot of how therapy works. In other words, in successful therapies, I believe they are successful because they help the person achieve their conscious or unconscious goals, and they help the person begin to disconfirm the pathogenic schemas that got in the way of those. Mm. And I think regardless of what the therapy is, I think that is a particular and important piece of the puzzle of how therapy works. I feel very convinced about that fact. Now, does that explain everything? No, nothing, expl <laughs> nothing, explains, uh, nothing explains everything. Um, there's a famous statistician named George Box who said um, there's a Box test named after him, and he's a very famous guy. And he was known for saying, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And I subscribe to that very much. That, so that's what I would say that is it, uh, is it the, the final answer? No, but it's a very useful answer mm. for understanding something about uh, how therapy works. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, maybe, maybe two questions left. Um, can you explain coaching? Yeah. Yeah, we've just written a number of papers uh, and just gotten those published on, on coach. It's, coaching. Coaching is a really interesting concept. Um, the premise is basically this. Look, people come to therapy to get better. Okay, I mean, we begin with that premise. People really do come because they want to get better. And that's why we have it. That's why we call it a plan formulation because it, it, that, that is the person's plan. They want to overcome their, dis, disconfirm their pathogenic beliefs and schemas. So um, to the extent that people want to, if you believe that people want to get better, mm -hmm. one corollary of that is that the person will be motivated, the patient will be motivated to help you help them. Okay. And that's, that's the gist of what coaching is about. It's where the, the patient is trying to give you clues or data or very clear things about this would be helpful to me. Mm. Um, you're going to ask me for an example. <laughs> there, there are, um, uh, I can give you lots of different kinds of examples. Um, so a woman came to therapy because she was very depressed about um, not having been promoted in her, in her work. And um, she was a very, uh, quite a remarkable woman. She was the first woman in her family to go to college. And she had, you know, the rest of her family had uh, had a pretty difficult life and she went on to achieve some pretty impressive things, but she was passed over for this promotion and was very upset about it. Um, it would be, I don't know if it would be easy, but there, there are plenty of therapists who would think, well, sure, this other person, the, the person that got the position was more, well, she's in the field of tech and a woman in tech is kind of problematic and the person that was promoted was a man and so on. But lest there be any doubt in the therapist's mind about this, there could be, she let the therapist know that 
how smart she was when she had growing up. So for example, um, she made a point of saying that in, uh, in high school, she could have gone on to college at the age of 15. Wow. I mean, that's how smart she was. And um, she couldn't do that, in fact, because the family was poor and they're all kind of, they wanted her to work and she took much longer for her to go to college. But that would be like a little example of, co because I, I think she began to feel like the therapist was going down a track. Well, maybe she was reaching too far mm. for this position. And so throw, she didn't have to, I mean, nothing is random in terms of what people tell us, right? She didn't have to share that little piece of, so that you, you start to raise the question, I wonder why she brought this up. Mm. And she brought that, so this is like one kind of subtle example of, of coaching. Sometimes coaching is more overt. Uh, there was a patient who um, wanted, she was um, being seen by a pretty traditional psychodynamic therapist who was being kind of a little bit aloof and removed. And uh, in the first session, she made it known that um, she likes a little bit more uh, interaction. Mm. So a little bit of coaching there, but then she went on in the second session to say, if she's going to open up to someone, she needs to feel like she knows something or understands something about who they are. Mm. Again, letting the therapist know something about what she needs. Uh -huh. that, so um, those are those are ways in which patients will will coach. And in, in that particular case, the, the therapist would have none of it. I mean, because of it, where he was coming from. But then she. She made it really clear that she once had, she had various medical problems. She had various medical doctors that were very uh, aloof and uh, not very engaging. But one time she went to the Mayo Clinic and there was a doctor there that she, that was really warm and engaging. She had this wonderful relationship with him. And, you know, so she, there's, those are all ways in which she's letting the therapist know something really important about this is how I form Mm. Good, wonderful relationships. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we mean by by coaching. Okay. For someone, let's say like me, who after I graduate um, my my graduate program, if I want to learn more about control mastery theory, um, is there kind of like a certification process, or is there schooling, or what do I have to do, um, other than just you know read up on it? Like, how can I become? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for the longest time, uh, there were no real ways. I mean, people had to read up on it. And when when uh, Samson and Weiss were um, alive, we had various, uh, there was one particular long, one week workshop uh, called the March Workshop, which, um, which was designed for people outside of the Bay Area. People came from all over the place to get a really intensive exposure to this uh, point of view. But we've developed, we have a, a pretty large research group now with a, a, a website, which is at uh, SFPRG, it's the San Francisco Psychotherapy Research Group.org. And we do offer trainings of many different kinds. And this past year, we started a, um, it's the first year we've done it, and it's gone incredibly well, a 24 week uh, intensive training that does have a certificate at the end of it in uh, in control mastery theory mm. and uh so there are a lot of um courses workshops that are offered uh by sfprg that um offer various kinds of trainings in um 
in, in control mastery theory. There's one actually tomorrow called the Master Clinician Case Conference where uh, we I designate particular clinicians that are very, very skillful. And uh, it's a 90 minute thing where they're discussing a case presented by a, an experienced therapist. Um, there's another one later this month on uh, how to become a more effective therapist. Uh, so we have, yeah, there are lots of, uh, lots of trainings and workshops that we, we do now. And um, we're a nonprofit. We don't do this for profit. We, um, so we try to keep the fees uh, very manageable. And um, most of our instructors don't get paid for, you know, they do, it, it's a labor of love. And so um, it's a good, it's a good organization. Oh, that's great. I'll, uh, I'll put the link to the organization in the description below. Oh, great. Thank you. And it also, by the way, I think I shared this with you, but it has um, many, 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 many public, maybe, I don't know how many now, more, a couple hundred publications that are up there on the website, which are available for anyone to look at. There's no charge for that. Um, so there's also that up there and other, other kinds of things. That's great. Good. Yeah. Um, this is kind of just a sidebar question, but when I was introducing you, you know, I, I I mentioned how you used to be the president of a few different organizations, and what is it like to be in such a high kind of role? What is that? What is that like? <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose it. I I've enjoyed it. I um, the the organization. They're they're basically. Um, the organization, like the Society for Psychotherapy Research in a lot of ways has been like an intellectual and academic home for me. Mm. It's a place where I feel very, um, you know, there's a lot of compatibility with many, many people in the org. It's, in, it's international now. So um, I've loved the fact that uh, people all over the world are interested in, in psychotherapy research. And so that's sort of what motivated me to um, take a leadership role in that group was that um, I just was so thrilled that there are so many, you know, being getting together once a year with colleagues uh, all over the world that um, are interested in the same thing you're interested in is, is pretty cool. Uh, so I like being, uh, I like the fact that I could uh, be part of that and was eventually entrusted to lead that organization because so i think it's a it's a great organization i i'm the same with the san francisco psychotherapy research group which really has been my home i mean i started working i went to school at berkeley uh, samson and weiss and was called at that time the mount zion psychotherapy research group was in san francisco just across the the bridge from berkeley and i started working there um my last year of college and basically never left Wow. So I'm the I'm the president of that organization okay. of that PRG, and I think that that's um, yeah, I think that's just been that really has been like home for me for all these years. Yeah, where do you see uh, where do you see your career in the next maybe decade or so? Well, I'm still interested in that same question I was interested in back in the '70s about how therapy works. I want to keep uh, I want to keep at it. You know, it's a big question, and so I want to I want to keep pursuing that. Uh, the main thing I've been doing now is really trying to bring um, 
sort of the next generation into addressing uh, that question. So I'm really interested in getting um, more people involved, uh, people earlier in their careers mm. involved in uh, research and teaching. And I've been finding that very, very, uh, very gratifying. And I've, I'm sure I'll continue to do that for as long as I possibly can to just keep bringing more um more early career people into the into the mix and and doing more collaborative work i mean since so much is now done on on zoom it's made it really it's in a, i mean it's, i love doing things in person and live but being on zoom has really opened the door to yeah. so much uh for us in terms of being able to involve people so you know we're very uh we do a lot of collaboration with a, a colleague and friend in, in British Columbia and Vancouver. We have colleagues, uh, very active colleagues in Italy, uh, in Europe, in other parts of Europe, uh, in Asia and Thailand. And so it's just opened up the world. And I, I want to continue uh, down that road as much as I can as well. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's great. It is. In that, uh, in the class that we just started in that certificate program, mm -hmm. we were gonna. It's it's online uh, for 24 weeks. And we were gonna limit it uh, initially to 15 people, uh, but we there was very there was high demand for it, so we upped it to 18. But we have people from literally from all over the world, from wow. Turkey, from Norway, from Canada, from um, all parts of the United States, and so it's really been been really cool to have uh, classes like that. Yeah, yeah, that's really neat. That's good. Yeah. All right, sir, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very informative. And um, yeah, like you said, with Zoom, uh, I know I would prefer an in-person meeting, but this is, you know, you're all the way across the country and we're still able to meet together. So yeah, it, that is, yeah. it does make a lot possible. So thank you very much for um, asking me to be part of it. and. Um, I wish you well. Oh, thank you. Thank you.